Well, happy Father's Day. Uh, so before I get into the message, just a quick word to fathers and also parents here. Uh, one of the things about fathers um, is that, I, and I'm guilty of this too, sometimes we can spend so much time trying to create or plan these amazing experiences with our kids and to show them how much we love them. And sometimes it might mean working a few more hours or, or you know, having a side hustle and trying to earn some more money so we can take them on this epic vacation. But ultimately, what's most meaningful for our kids uh, is not whether we think it's meaningful, but whether they think it's meaningful. And a lot of times that's presence. So I just want to encourage you today on Father's Day, um, as, a, as a parent, if you're a parent, to just spend time with your kids, uh, to show them how much you love them, to show them uh, just your presence in and through that. All right, so let's pray and we'll get into the message for today. Lord, as we come before you, uh, a lot of times there are things that will get in the way from us, uh, from us going to you, from us laying down our lives before you, from you coming down to us. Show us what those are today. And fill us with your spirit. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, with each of my children, I remember the first time they stood on the edge of the pool, uh, oftentimes it was swimming lessons, and, or before swimming lessons, and I would be in the pool and I'd be looking up at them and I'd ask them to jump. All right, and I'm like, jump, come on, jump. And they're looking down at me. They're like, I don't know about this, right? I mean, it's pretty firm-footed. You know, I, I like being solid and secure. This is what I know. I don't know about jumping into that. What if you step back, right? Because they knew I, I'm not that good at dad jokes, but I'm good at joking around with my kids. And they're probably like, are you, are you for, you know, what if daddy's just playing one of his tricks and steps back? And, and I know their minds were full of doubts every time I was like, just trust me, please, just jump. And I, I would like go and try to grab them and then they would do this thing where they would sit down and try. I was like, please, please just jump. It's gonna be fun. And then eventually they would jump for the first time. And that moment when they jumped, everything would change. Right, everything changed. They, would, they were like, oh, that was awesome. And they'd you know, come back out of the pool and they would jump and they're like, daddy, go farther. Daddy, go farther. And then they would say, you know, throw me up. You know, first time it was like, oh, he might not catch me. But once I did it and I caught them, you know, they're like, throw me up higher, throw me up higher. And as a father, I loved seeing the joy on their face mid-jump. The joy on their face as I throw them up in the sky. That, where, where, where that, that face is just marked with complete trust and freedom as they were giving it all. And even though as my eldest two, one is about to turn 10 and the other one's eight, as much as now I, they can't jump anymore into my arms, especially in the pool or I'll break my back and have to go to the chiropractor or something again. You know, as much as I can't do that, it's funny that they haven't outgrown their desire. Even when they see their little brother jump into my arms, I can still catch smiles on their faces. Now, it's funny, isn't it? No matter how old we get, we never seem to outgrow the desire that we have to know someone or, or want to know someone that we can completely trust and be free with. We never outgrow the desire that we have to be with someone that we can be completely our honest selves with, someone that we can jump to knowing that we are going to be caught 
just as we are, right? Just as a child can and, and should be able to with their parents. Do you have someone like that? And while it takes trust to find and time to uh, find someone like that here on earth, the good news is that we worship a heavenly Father who says, no matter what we've done, just come just as you are. And being Father's Day and all, if you had a pretty good dad, just think of the best parts about him. And then just magnify that a thousandfold, and you'll just get a small little glimpse of how generous and glorious our Heavenly Father is. But if you didn't grow up with a dad, or maybe your dad was physically there but emotionally absent, or even worse, if he neglected or abused you, just know that our Heavenly Father is nothing like that. He doesn't say, do this, and then I will show you my love. Do this, and then I might accept you. Or, or he would never, our Heavenly Father would never say things like, oh, my children don't do things like that, shaming you or, or guilting you. And he never says things like, man, I wish you were never born. And as we'll see in today's passage, anyone and everyone can jump into the arms of God. Anyone. And maybe you don't feel like that today. But by the end of the message, you'll see that anyone and everyone can jump into the arms of God. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Mark chapter 5 as we continue our series in Mark. And we'll discover, starting from verse 21, that anyone and everyone can jump into the arms of God. So we'll see and we'll start from verse 21. Mark chapter 5, verse 21. When Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side... A large crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, My little daughter is dying. Come and lay your hands on her so that she can get well and live. So Jesus went with them, and a large crowd was following and pressing against him. Now, a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much Under many doctors, she had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. Having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and and touched his clothing. For she said, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be made well. Instantly, her flow of blood ceased, and she sensed in her body that she was healed of her affliction. At once, Jesus realized in himself that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing against you, and yet you say, who touched me? But he was looking around to see who had done this. The woman, with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. While he was still speaking, people came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? When Jesus overheard what was said, he told the synagogue leader, don't be afraid, only believe. He did not let anyone accompany him except except Peter, James, and John, James's brother. They came to the leader's house and he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him. But he put them all outside. He took the child's father, mother, and those who were with him and entered the place where the child was. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old. 
At this, they were utterly astounded, then he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and told them to give her something to eat. In this passage, uh, we see that anyone and everyone can jump into the arms of God. And particularly, we see that there are three people who desperately need someone that they can be completely free with. They, they desperately need someone that they can be completely themselves with, someone that they can come to just as they are. We see, number one, the, the synagogue leader, Jairus. Uh, secondly, we see that there's the woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years, and we also see Jairus's daughter. And we see that when the three of them come to Jesus just as they are, Jesus meets them. When you step back and consider all that these three individuals had to overcome and work through to come to Jesus, there was a lot standing in the way. Yet for these three, they all decide that whatever it is that is standing in the way between them and Jesus, they decide that it's worth it to lay it down, to overcome it, and to call upon the person of Jesus. So, so let's look at each of the three characters and see what they had to overcome, how they over, and how they overcame it to come to Jesus. So we'll start with Jairus uh, in verse 21. All right, so look at verse 21 here. We see a guy named Jairus, right? And, and here's the context of it, verse 21. When Jesus had crossed over again by the boat to the other side, right, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. So just picture that, you know, there's a sea, there's a large crowd gathering around Jesus. He had just crossed over by boat, and there's this crowd that is so excited about everything that Jesus has done up to this point that they have already crowded around him after he's crossed to the other side. And then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came. He is one of the many that are crowding around Jesus. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, right? So just think about this picture, right? This synagogue leader in the midst of crowds early on in the ministry of Jesus, he is one of those crowd members. As a synagogue leader, he is coming and bowing down and kneeling falling at Jesus' feet and begging him, right? He's begging him. My little daughter is dying. Come and lay your hands on her so that she can get well and live. And then Jesus goes and follows him. So as a synagogue leader, right, I, I repeated that and I emphasized that word over and over again because this synagogue leader had status. He had status. And everyone assumed and knew what the synagogue leaders were all about, and, and they understood that there was, this, there was this separation between Jesus and the synagogue leaders and the religious establishment of the day. So Jairus had to overcome his pride, because in a sense, he, he was a teacher, right? I mean, this synagogue leader was the one that was educated, not this guy from Galilee, yet he had to overcome his pride to come to Jesus. It's, it's kind of like the boss a boss that needs to apologize or decides that they should apologize to their team for making a mistake. I mean, they don't need to. They probably don't want to. Everyone knows that they are the ones that made the mistake, but no one has the guts to call them out. It's kind of like that boss who says, you know what, I'm going to own it. I'm going to lay down my pride. It's kind of like that. Or it's kind of like that father who messes up and and instead of ignoring it or rationalizing the mistake away, decides to ask forgiveness from his children. 
In the same way, Jairus had to overcome his pride to come to Jesus. Now, as a leader in the synagogue, Jairus would have had continual contact and a really good relationship with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. And as a result, everyone would have lumped him in with all of those other people, right? They would have all, he would have been lumped in with the religious leader category. And that category, everyone knew that that category of people hated Jesus. But in desperation, we see that this synagogue leader lays aside his pride and comes to Jesus because he sees that without Jesus, his little girl would be dead. So Jairus makes a decision, right? Instead of continuing to stand in his pride and oppose Jesus along with his fellow elite religious leaders that he is categorized with, he realizes that maybe the people he'd been hanging out with aren't all that they're cracked up to be. Have you ever felt that? That one day you just kind of realized, wait a second, why are all my friends jerks? <laughs> Anyone have that realize? Like you, you never saw it. Like you legitimately did not see it. Maybe your parents saw it. Maybe everyone else around you saw it. And you just woke up one day and you're like, I don't want my life to be like that. It's almost like he woke up and he was like, wait a second, if they are all that they're cracked up to be, why aren't they coming and helping me with my sick daughter? They, probably, they were probably saying, hey, you probably didn't do enough, probably didn't sacrifice enough. Maybe there's sin in your life. His friends were, prob- her, his friends were probably coming down on him with religion with pride and his, with his mistakes. And he just kind of woke up and realized that maybe freedom doesn't actually come by rules and regulations. And, and then in contrast, right, he hears about the ministry of Jesus, right? We're in chapter 5 right now. We, he, he hears about and he's seen probably the ministry of Jesus and how Jesus has the authority to bring about freedom, life, and restoration. So he decides in that critical moment to get up, to swallow his pride, and to come to Jesus. And it's amazing to see how Jesus responds to Jairus, right? In verse 24, we see that Jairus coming to him in humility and desperation, right? I mean, Jesus sees this. Jesus sees that Jairus isn't coming to him with like a question and trying to trick him and and trying to trip him up, right? We see how Jesus responds to other religious leaders or individuals that come to him in that manner, yet Jairus doesn't come in that way. He comes to him um, not with a puffed out chest and an agenda in hand. He comes in humility, So without any fanfare and Jesus, without even saying, I told you so, uh, he goes with them. It's it's not even like Jesus said, well, looking at my agenda, I think I can fit you in after the 18th. I want to help you, but look at the lineup of people. And he doesn't even say, you know what, your your house is there? Well, I'm going there anyway, so that's on the way, so I might as well help you. He literally stops what he's doing. We don't know where he was going to go or what he was about to do. He stops what he's doing and he responds. Now, for those of you who are planners and for those of you who like to book meetings one after another and keep your schedules full, maybe we should take heed and realize that Jesus here was adaptable. 
And maybe we should actually schedule moments of breathing room, moments of rest, to be present and to respond to maybe the gone moments that God brings about in our lives. Remember that acronym that we've been talking about for years, BLESS, begin with prayer? What if every day we started and we just began every day with prayer and we said, Lord, here I am. And I also, when I'm driving to work, I go through mentally my schedule and I'm like, Lord, I offer this meeting, I offer this, I offer this. You know, I just pray that you would help me be present to those around me. And then L stands for listen. E stands for eat. S stands for serve, and the last S stands for share. Imagine if we went about our days with room to adjust and to adapt. I wonder what God might bring about and how he might use us differently in our lives. So Jesus here, not knowing what he was going to do, stops what he's doing and goes with him. It reminds me of that song. You know, what a wonderful name it is. What a wonderful name it is, the name of Jesus Christ, my King. You know that song, what a wonderful name it is, nothing compares to this. What a wonderful name it is, the name of Jesus. And in that moment, I wonder if this was the song that was on the heart of Jairus. In his desperation, knowing that he probably didn't deserve it, Jesus responding What a wonderful name it is. So we see this, and we see that Jesus responds. And then we see in verse 25 that there's a woman suffering from bleeding. So when we look at this woman suffering from bleeding, right, we see that she's been suffering for 12 years. Now, what is it that she had to overcome in order to come to Jesus? Well, it was religion. It was culture. Really, it was the customs of her day the norms of her day that she had to overcome to come to Jesus. It's kind of like Muslims and Mormons around the world who after meeting Christ and deciding to follow him are often ostracized from their families and their entire community. And like individuals who have been weighed down with guilt and the shame of their past decide to offer all of it to Christ in the same way this woman had to overcome her culture, her religion, her customs. She'd lay it all down to come to Jesus. Now, who is this woman anyway? Well, we see in this woman that she's been afflicted with this isolating and life-threatening disease. Now, get this, for as long as Jairus' daughter has been alive. Right? Who here has a 12-year-old? Okay, we have a few here. Who has, I mean, for the entire life of your 12-year-old child, imagine if your spouse has been suffering with a life-threatening disease for that entire length for 12 years. Yet, we see that on the same day, their lives seem to intersect. For a woman to have a blood issue of this sort in the customs and in the time of this day would have actually made her socially unclean. And and what that would have meant is that she would have actually been ostracized from other people. 
So in that day, uh, as a woman came into her menstrual cycle, they'd be put outside the camp for a number of days lawfully. I mean, this is kind of the customs of this day until everything was over. And it was interpreted in that day that she was unclean. So anyone who came into contact with her in that day was believed to be ceremonially unclean as well. So no one came into contact with her. And, and, and you just weren't allowed to because they thought that that would be passed on to other people. And though this wasn't a contagious condition, it was actually socially isolating more than anything. Right? It was socially isolating. So essentially, some theologians believe that uh, this woman couldn't stop her cycle, which is what led her to be isolated for 12 years. So we see in verse 26 here that she literally spent all she had, right? She had spent everything she had on doctors to be cured, on whatever to be cured, but her condition never cured and it only worsened. 12 years, right? 12 years. And if you look at the Gospel of Luke, he's a physician. He says, he even uses the word incurable. But look at what it says in verse 28. If I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Imagine the despair and the hopelessness that you must be feeling if for 12 years, after spending every single thing you have, and after having your hopes up and being let down and being let down and this emotional cycle of up and down, up and down, up and down. Imagine 12 years of that. Imagine how you must be feeling. And then what you must be feeling to just think, if I touch this man's clothes that I just heard of, I will be healed. She was willing, essentially, after 12 years, and 12 years, I mean, everyone probably knew who she was in that day. It's not like it was millions of people. She was willing in being in the crowds and being in the crowds meant she probably was going to be pushed up against other people as well. And other people were probably going to be like, what are you doing here? You shouldn't be here. And enduring all of that, right, imagine the humiliation that she was facing, that she thought she was going to face, even as she prepared to go, and that she was facing. And the names and people were probably calling, unclean, unclean, unclean trying to tell everyone to get away from her. The pain of that, enduring all of those names, imagine all she had to endure, and then this trust she had to say, no, but no, it's, it's worth it just to come to Jesus. Right? Being healed meant physically being healed meant that she was going to be restored ceremonially and restored socially. And this woman, unlike the daughter of the religious leader, wouldn't have come from privilege. Jesus but Jesus, in talking to her, in calling her out, actually calls her daughter, and he honors her in that way. I wonder if there's someone here who needs to know and hear that you are a daughter of God. That as a daughter of God, that you are loved, that you are accepted, that you are beautiful on the inside out, because that's how Jesus sees you. And it's not because of anything you've done, but that's just who you are when we come to him. And in verse 29, we see that this woman comes to Jesus and she experiences restoration, right? Instantly, 
Her flow of blood ceased, and she sensed in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Now look at how Jesus responds in verse 30. It's fascinating, right? It's fascinating in verse 30 how Jesus responds. He says, who touched my clothes? Right? Do you really think Jesus didn't know who touched his clothes? I mean, just think about this, right? Why did he say, who touched my clothes? I mean, he knows. He was aware of this woman, just like he was aware of the storm that we studied last week when he slept in the belly of the boat. As God, he is always aware. But I wonder if he reacted in this way because he wanted this to be a teachable moment for the crowds that were following him. I wonder if he reacted in this way, right? And everyone was like, unclean, unclean, unclean. And she touched, and he said, who touched my clothes? All right? And everyone's like, Jesus is talking. What did he say? What, what, what did he just say? Did he say, who touched my clothes? Right? Everyone's all around him. Why is he saying, who touched my clothes? Right? And everyone's kind of silent. And there's murmuring, and, and people kind of get quiet. And they're like, why did Jesus say, who touched my Who cares who touches your clothes? All right? It's not like he's wearing Versace or whatever. I mean, he's like, it's like, it's a robe, right? I mean, it's like, who touched my clothes? And I wonder if he did this because he wanted to silence everyone. And he wanted everyone to see what was about to happen. And he wanted everyone to see that, and, and he wanted everyone to see and to actually be a part of seeing the restoration of this woman from unclean to clean. I wonder if he wanted to show everyone that this woman was about to be restored socially and to be accepted by everyone and for God to receive all the glory because this woman who had been sick and isolated for 12 years was finally healed. I wonder if he wanted to reinstate her in society because of his generosity. I love how one commentator put it. This, I love this. He had taken on her unclean, Jesus, in healing her, had taken on her uncleanness and sickness and imparted to her his purity and health. It's a fascinating thing to think about, isn't it? He had taken on her uncleanness and sickness and imparted to her his purity and health. The suffering servant of Isaiah 53 strikes again. This is what it says in Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, right? This is a prophecy about Jesus, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. And for those of you who are suffering with ongoing sickness and hurt, Jesus wants to bear that for you today. And going back to that song, not only is Jesus' name wonderful and beautiful, but it's also powerful and nothing can stand against him. So we see Jairus, we see this woman, and we also see, lastly, Jairus' daughter. And boy, did this little girl have a lot to overcome to come to Jesus. Right? We see this little girl from verse 35 to 43 that, that actually, she, yeah, I, mean, I guess she had to overcome death to come to Jesus, but she couldn't overcome death. Right? I mean, Jairus had to lay down his pride, overcome his pride. This woman had to overcome shame and guilt and humiliation to lay themselves down before Christ. This little girl 
Maybe when she was alive, she could have done this, but the moment Jesus comes for her, she's dead. And what's beautiful, I mean, we're talking about overcoming, right? What's, what's beautiful, particularly about this last interaction with Jesus and this daughter who is now dead, is that Jesus touched her in the same way that he touched both of them. He received her in the same that he received both of them. And this girl didn't have to do a thing for that to happen. Just think about that for a little bit. She didn't do anything to come to Jesus because Jesus came to her instead. She didn't have to do anything to overcome. She didn't have to overcome anything because Jesus overcame everything for her. And that's the gospel. That's the gospel. I love how P.T. Forsyth put it. Christianity is not the sacrifice we make, but the sacrifice we trust just think about it. Christianity is not the sacrifice we make, but it's the sacrifice we trust. Not the victory we win, but the victory we inherit. It's not the victory we win, but it's the victory we inherit. What we see in this last interaction between Jesus and Jairus' daughter is that ultimately no amount of doing or striving can atone for our sins. No amount of us trying to overcome will ultimately be able to overcome the gap between us and Christ to make us whole, to restore our brokenness, or to grant us everlasting life. Only Jesus can do that. Now, what's beautiful about this interaction here is that, yes, we do need to lay down our pride before Christ. There are things that each and every one of us has to overcome to come to Jesus. Our pride, our religion, our customs, our tradition, our shame, our guilt, our past, right? The things that we do, our identity, we, we need to lay down everything that we need to lay down in order to come to Christ. Our past, our present, our future, right? We have to lay it all down. Everything. We have to lay it all down. But that in and of itself cannot save us. Maybe you don't have the strength to lay anything else down because you've laid it all down and you feel dead inside, like Jairus' daughter. But the good news of Jesus Christ is that ultimately, Jesus is the overcomer, not us. Right? Jesus, it, yes, we need to lay it all down, but ultimately Jesus is the overcomer because he overcame everything. Bearing your sickness, bearing your sin, bearing your shame, bearing the cycle of temptation and sin that you fall into. He bore it all so that you might have everlasting life. And that's what Jesus wants to do with you and I today. Jesus has already come down. You remember that opening story like a father's arm, like his arms open wide. Jesus is looking like this to you. And he's just saying, won't you jump? Won't you jump? Jump. 